0: Greetings, on Sunday, January 17th, 2021, Pastor Kerry Bauer led a discussion about the new vaccines that are coming onto the market to deal with COVID-19. Hopefully this will be a helpful and factual um, contribution to your dialogue around vaccines.
1: And I'm gonna introduce you first of all to our faith community nurses. Um, This is Mary Lynn and Glenda. They are both our faith community nurses and they're here for our congregation, for all of us, to come alongside you as you have medical questions, to answer questions, to offer you support, um, a listening ear. Um, they really serve us by keeping us abreast of how to take care of ourselves. Um, so I'm really grateful for Glenda and Mary Lynn and their presence with us. Mm -hmm. Now I'm also going to add, and this is Dr. Andrew Vernell. we get to just call him Andrew today. And he is our presenter. He is going to be, um, sharing with us about the vaccine. So go ahead, Andrew.
2: So I did put together some slides and I have a couple goals for this talk in terms of just educating and you know, as a physician, I can help to translate from some of the medical terms and the things that people say and trying to get that to a um, understandable level. So I do have some PowerPoint slides. Hopefully I don't scare anybody. Part of that is because it is gonna go up on the website and I'm not gonna read every one of my slides and some of them I may pass by quickly, But i like to have the information there if you want to go back and look at it, you can, but I don't want to be bogged down in all the details and get really to the practical stuff. So I'm going to try to share my screen. Okay, so that is who I am. And so I am an ear, nose and throat physician. I'm not an immunologist. I'm not a public speaker. Um, I am who I am, but a lot of times when I'm with my patients, my personality is to try to explain to them the issues that are going on with whatever medical thing we're talking about and help them to decide. And so they are the ones deciding. So a lot of this talk is gonna be trying to make this understandable. And Doug modeled for me a couple months ago in his um, sermon that is, this is a safe community to use words like endoplasmic reticulum and Golgi apparatus and things like that. So I'm gonna get a little bit into the biology so hopefully some of you will remember that. And if you're not worried about that, don't worry about it. You can just glaze over. Um, also, I am not giving any one of you specific medical advice. That really is a conversation between you and your physician about the specifics. But I do want to give you some of the information that you will need to make those decisions. And I'm very much aware that there's data all the time. There's information all the time. And some of the things that I made slides on even last night are already out of date. So this talk is not about giving you the -the up-to-the-minute data as much as the understanding and the big picture. So here's my outline. First, what is a virus? How is COVID-19 different than the other viruses we see? How do vaccines work? What are vaccines? How do they make this vaccine so fast? How bad is COVID right now? Should I get the vaccine? And what happens after I get the vaccine? So a virus is a... um, my pointer will work. It is a lipid. There you go, surrounding DNA or RNA material, and there are some proteins on the surface that attach to body skin cells. They can't replicate by themselves. They have to attack a body skin cell, take over that cell, and make copies of themselves. So they can't live by themselves. By themselves, they would die when they do attack a body, our immune system attacks the virus. And some of the things that we get when we get a virus are because of our body's response to it. The fever, the aches, those sorts of things are the response that our body is giving to the infection from that virus. Okay, a little bit of the DNA and the RNA. We all know DNA holds our our genes, holds the codes. And the way it works is there are all these different base codes. There are four of them, but in different orders. And very smart proteins unwrap a certain part of DNA when they want to make a specific protein here, and then it's copied. And so that copy goes into mRNA, so this <laughs> is the DNA. And then this is the mRNA that has the copy, the recipe, if you will, for that protein. The mRNA goes out of the nucleus of the cell out here to the endoplasmic reticulum. that's off the Doug, where the ribosomes use those base pairs to connect individual amino acids. And we have 21 amino acids. So as they connect up, as they form together, then that forms a protein. And then that protein can go do things. They also, the proteins get folded and other things. So coronavirus is just named that because of these spikes. They, somebody thought they looked like a crown. So this is the family of viruses, the coronavirus. And there are several of them. A couple of them just cause colds. Um, SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome back in 2004, and MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome in 2012, came about in the same family. So the technical name of our current COVID-19 is Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome Coronavirus 2. It is a large mRNA virus, just there are a lot of base pairs in the RNA and they're all the time, this part's gonna be out of date soon, but there are more strains. So as each one of these things is copied, as the mRNA is copied multiple, multiple times, you can get um, mutations, And those mutations can make that virus not functional anymore and die, or it can make it worse. So for example, the European variant that they're talking about um, isn't isn't more virulent, it isn't more um, dangerous when you get it, but it is more infectious. South African may be refractory to some of our vaccines. So those are things we worry about in these new strains, and this is gonna be changing all the time. But this is the basic shape of the, of the COVID-19, the coronavirus, um, with these spike proteins and then the RNA on the inside. And so this is just the the DNA or the RNA of the, the virus is here. And you can see the scientists have found the exact sequence of that um, and that's inside the envelope. So what makes this one different? Why is this one different than the other ones? Well, one protein g- got deleted and then some of the other proteins were had mutations in them. Specifically, the spike protein increased the binding efficiency to the ACE2 receptor. That's the angiotensin converting enzyme receptor that is on a lot of our cells and we'll talk about where those are. And so this virus attaches to them very highly. So this has a 10 to 20% higher binding than the old SARS or the MERS. Um, It's more infectious and then there's uh, a more aggressive body response. So this is just a little uh, schematic of the life cycle of this COVID vaccine. It connects to a cell, these spike proteins attached to a cell wall. It comes in, And then it opens up. So the mRNA goes to the, I'm not sure if that's in the nucleus or just in the cytoplasm. It starts getting copied. And then the mRNA comes out here to the ribosomes and it makes proteins. And those proteins go out to the surface of the cell and the mRNA copies come over here and then they bleb off and become a new coronavirus. So this is how a virus attaches the cell and it keeps using the cell's machinery to make more copies of itself till eventually the cell dies and or... the the body recognizes these different proteins that are not itself, and and the body's immune system will kill this cell. Where are these receptors? They're in the lungs, they're in the heart, muscle cells, the intestines, the kidney, and in my neck of the woods, they're in the mouth, nose, throat, and surrounding the olfactory nerve. So that's something we've learned about this is that those receptors are near the, um, the nerves for smell so very on, they said, "Oh, a lot, one of the early signs of people who get COVID is they lose their sense of smell. Now, thankfully, it's not in the nerve of smell. So a lot of times that smell comes back, but that's one of the signs we have for a COVID vaccine. And then this also causes this severe body reaction. And we're still learning about this, but in general, our body fights viruses with B cells. Those are the ones that make antibodies and T cells, which are cells that recognize the infected cells and destroy them. And so as part of the attack of our body to the virus, you can get cardiac damage, respiratory damage. We found that people have more clotting. So you get more blood clots in terms of strokes or um, heart attacks, organ failure. And then there are some long-term sequelae we'll talk about and even people can die from this. So this is more infectious than other respiratory viruses. And it's, it's less fatal than SARS and MERS but more fatal than the flu. So more people have this than the flu and it's more fatal. Um, And it is spread by respiratory droplets. Um, It is in the air when you're around somebody. And they say, if you're around somebody less than six feet for more than 15 minutes, you are exposed to whatever they're exhaling. And if they're exhaling virus, then, then you're exposed to that virus. It can also live for a couple days on a permeable surface, four days on an impermeable surface, so the, the nice thing about this virus is that it is very susceptible outside the body. So if you do just a Clorox wipe, even soap and water, it will kill this virus. You just have to do it. You just have to check those areas like the doorknobs and other things where it can live for a couple of days. The other thing that's tricky about this is that people can spread the virus. If they're infected, they can spread the virus for up to eight days before they have symptoms. So they don't know. So people who are walking around saying, well, I don't need a mask. I don't need to worry about it because I don't have any symptoms. Some of those are the reason that it's still spreading is because they spread it before they even know they have it. And I'm not sure about the reinfection. There've been some reports. That's also into how long does your immunity last? We're still figuring that out. And, and again, we all want to follow the science. The problem is we don't have years and years of experience with this. We have, we're trying to figure it out on the fly. So the science, number one, needs interpretation and also needs scrutiny But a lot of these studies You know, when you listen to the people who read the studies, say, okay, this is a good one. This is a bad one. And that's another thing. I'm just going to take an aside here. The job of the media and TV and the internet is to shock you. And every time you see on the side of your computer screen, shocking things that are happening, but to me that sometimes gets too overwhelming of, okay, well, what, what is actually happening? What is happening here in my life, in my um, sphere that I can do something about instead of all these shocking, terrible things? I'll get to that later, but that's my aesthetic, trying to avoid the media as much as possible with all the things they're saying. So who is at higher risk for getting this if they get it? People who have high blood pressure, older than 65, people who already have cardiac disease, people who have respiratory disease, smokers, and, and people who have diabetes. But that's not to say that young people aren't at risk for getting bad things as well. There's a couple studies. One, three months after people got better, only 12% of them didn't have any more symptoms. That's pretty shocking. There's another study from Wuhan, China, 6 months after a confirmed infection, people still had fatigue and muscle weakness, sleep problems, anxiety, below normal 6-minute walk test. And some other studies show that 10% of the people who have COVID-19 have long-term sequelae. Well, what are we talking about? We're talking about pulmonary dysfunction. I know I heard from Penn Barnes who is one of the immunologist or the infectious disease doctors at St. Joe's Hospital saying one of her patients was a 20-year-old marathon runner who now needs supplemental oxygen to walk to his mailbox. He has enough lung damage. He's young, he's healthy, but he has enough lung damage that he needs oxygen. There was a study about people who had COVID and 85% of them had abnormal cardiac findings on MRI and cardiac testing so that there was damage to their myocardial muscle. Thrombotic events, that's the clotting, so heart attacks and stroke, and neurologic events. There are definitely people who say they have decreased memory, decreased concentration, headaches, and we don't really know how long does this stuff last? Is this forever or is this for a period and then it will slowly get better? So I'm gonna transition a little bit here to vaccines. Vaccines are things that we try to do to decrease somebody from getting the actual disease. The goal is to get your immune system to recognize this virus without giving you the virus And so that if you are exposed to the virus, your body attacks it before it can fully develop. So there's a couple different ways. Like the flu shot is a dead vaccine. So they take the flu virus, they kill it, I think with radiation, and then they inject it. And so your body recognizes the actual virus um, and makes a response to it, even though you shouldn't get it. That's why some people say, I got the flu from the flu vaccine. If it wasn't dead, that's a possibility. Live attenuated. They put a mutation in the virus to weaken it, and then they give it to you. And so that it's a weakened virus, but it's actually the measles virus they're giving you just in a weakened state. There's a virus vector where they put, they have this weakened adenovirus that really is not going to cause an infection. That's a cold virus. Then they take a virus protein and put it into the weakened virus. So in this case, they take that crown, that spike protein of COVID, they put it in a weakened adenovirus, and then they give the body the this virus. And so the body recognizes, but it recognizes it as COVID. And so it kills it, makes antibodies, and the T-cells can now recognize COVID. Recombinant protein is just making a lot of protein. So for example, in the the Petri dish, they make a lot of those spike proteins and then they can inject it into the body and the body will recognize the spike protein and attack it so that if you get exposed to that protein, then you already have the antibodies and the T-cells and that's what they do with hepatitis. So I've also been a little frustrated that people are throwing the word mRNA virus or vaccine around and I've never seen it explained really anywhere. (laughs) What are we talking about? So the mRNA vaccine is a new type of vaccine and I'm gonna skip slide. It's been around, they've been studying it for a long time but they've never had a vaccine with this. The goal is to put RNA for just the surface protein into a lipid. So it's like a cell membrane, inject it, have the cells make that protein and then your body will, will recognize it. And I'll show you a slide of that here in a minute. So there's no infection part of the RNA and there's, the RNA stays out of the nucleus and is degraded pretty fast outside the body and inside the body. Some of the, the viruses, like DNA viruses, can incorporate into the DNA of the cell and then in the future cause problems. Like, for example, the HPV virus can cause cancer 10 years later. And so we know the, the shingles virus, you can get it, and then years later it can come back as an active infection. The, the goal of this vaccine is to not have it go into the, the nucleus, not have it have anything permanent. So I'm not sure if you guys can see this picture, but you have this little vaccine over here. Uh, I'm sorry, the vaccine with the lipid and the mRNA inside and it comes into the cell. In the cell, they make the proteins, this antigen presenting cell. So this is a body cell, puts those proteins out here on the surface so that our body, our T cells and our B cells can hear, can attach to that and recognize that as this is not us. And so it can make a response. One of the hard parts about this, why they've been studying this for 10 years, is how do you get the mRNA in there? If you just shoot mRNA in somebody's arm, the body quickly kills it. It doesn't ever make what it's supposed to make. So these lipid layers that they have now uh, developed are the hard part. And that's one of the reasons it has to stay so cold, is there aren't preservatives in there. It's not a, a, a robust thing that you can just put in somebody's arm and it'll stay there. You have to keep it cold until it's actually injected. So this is the slide I was thinking about earlier, is that they've been testing this for 10 years for the flu virus, for the Zika virus, rabies, cytomegalovirus, HIV virus, and some cancers, lung, pancreatic, melanoma, brain. They've been doing the work on this to try to get this lipid um, carrier stable so that they could use it. And then they can put whatever mRNA in it. And very early on, uh, the Chinese scientists had gotten the signal, had gotten the RNA in the, uh, of the COVID 19 virus and so they had that they knew what the um, what the actual mrna order was so how do we make vaccines well usually a private company or an institution like a, a, a university does all the research and develops the vaccine then they go to trials first question is is it safe so they inject it into very few people just to see is there any bad reactions then you want to know is it effective does it actually stop the virus um, what what you want it to do then it goes to the government and they once you say, yep, it's done, we, we have enough people studied, that's usually several, you know, like 30 to 40,000 people for this stage, the efficacy. Then the government reviews it, goes to the FDA, goes to the CDC. If they approve it, then the company starts to make a vaccine and then the vaccine becomes available to the public. So two things this process needs, besides a lot of things, other things, is time, is how do you go step by step by step by step, and money. It's probably not cheap to get 30,000 people to agree to get something shot in their arm unless you're paying them, unless you're giving them money to do that. So how did we get this vaccine so fast? Again, this is one of those things, Operation Warp Speed, I hear it said all the time and I didn't really know the specifics of it till I actually looked at the government websites and read through a bunch of the other stuff. But what this is, is in the CARES Act, 10 billion for treatment and research, So the government basically got into a private-public collaboration saying, we're going to pay you companies, take part of the money part out of it, and we're going to pay you in advance. We're not going to wait till you actually have a vaccine and then we'll buy it from you. We're going to pay you to help you develop it, and we're going to buy some of uh, of the vaccine, and we're going to pay you to help you do the trials. So we're gonna try to get things going faster. The other thing is, is a lot of times, I'm not an expert on this at all, is that the companies will say, here's what our safety protocol is. Then they give it to the government. And then the CDC and the FDA said, well, here are our goals, here are our benchmarks. So the government gave those to the company and said, here's what we're gonna look at. Make sure you're doing these things before you bring us anything. So this shot, this screen is a little bit shocking. It was shocking to me. So before anything was done, the government gave Pfizer $1.95 billion And as part of that, they bought 100 million doses of a vaccine that's not made yet. And they gave Moderna 4.1 billion and bought 200 million doses and 300 million more. Johnson & Johnson, 1.4, AstraZeneca. So they bought all of these knowing that some of these probably aren't going to fly. Some of these will not pass testing. Some of these will not do what we wanted to do. And those will go by the wayside. But this did two things. It made the companies actually say, "Okay, great, we can do this without a lot of financial risk because we've already sold the doses and it can be faster because we have money for all the testing. So they did thirty to 40,000 in the two, the Pfizer and the Moderna, which are the mRNA vaccines. They also, anybody who's worked for the government knows that there's a line. You get in a line. Well, they've obviously expedited the review. They said, okay, give us the data and we'll have our people look at it right away. And then even in the Western States Commission, I'm not sure what they added, but Washington, Oregon, and California said, we're not trusting the government. Show us your data before we're going to approve it in our state. And so they looked at it. The other thing is, well, how much does it cost? It's free because we already bought it. (laughs) We already spent a lot of money to buy these vaccines. And so, and, and also there are, what, 350 million people in the United States. We've bought more vaccines than we have people here, expecting that some of those won't make it. So this is kind of a complicated thing, but this was the MRNA vaccine. And so if you look at this little one here, um, that this is the point where they gave the vaccine and people got a placebo, sugar water, or they got the vaccine. And you can see each of these blips up is somebody getting COVID. So they started here at day zero, they got the vaccine, and the people who had the vaccine and the people who didn't have the vaccine were exactly the same. So by 12 12 days, these lines are exactly the same. Then at about 12 days, They get their second vaccine at 21 days over here somewhere, but at 12 days it splits. You can see down here at the bottom, the whole thing. People who did not get the vaccine, this is their doses. This is their cases of COVID, and people who did get the vaccine after the two weeks, relatively stayed flat. Now, is anything 100%? No. Some people did get the virus. This graph here is where they got this number, 95% effective. Is that they they saw how many people got it and how many people didn't get it. And these two groups were supposed to be the same. I don't know anything about them, except for they didn't know if they had it or not. So they should have been acting the exact same way in terms of their mask and their social distancing and what they were doing. But still, those people got that. Um, and just in, you know, this was 95% effective. Back in 2019, the flu shot, in retrospect, was 45% effective. Shingles vaccine is about 85 to 97% effective. Pneumovax is 60 to 70%. So this new technology is, works pretty well. It's pretty effective. So what are the downsides? What are the side effects? Whenever you're weighing the risks and the benefits, well, what are the risks? There's things that happen when you have an infection, when your body is giving an immune response, fever, soreness, headache, muscle aches, fatigue, joint pain. These are all actually good signs that they're not comfortable. But just like when you get your flu shot and you're sore, and my first shot, which was the day after Christmas, I didn't have very many of those symptoms at all. So in that, it makes you think: Is this doing anything? I didn't feel anything. Is there any effect there? So I kind of liked it that I was a little sore yesterday after I got my other back, my second shot. Anaphylaxis again—that's what we see on the headlines: that somebody in Alaska had anaphylaxis. So you know, this is NPR. So this is the the drug manufacturer, the drug um, watchdog group said it was 11.1 cases of anaphylaxis in a million doses. So yes, you have a risk of anaphylaxis if you get this vaccine, partially because it's new, but partially because of that fact. Um, when you get the vaccine, they watch you for fifteen minutes. If you've had any history of allergy or anaphylaxis or anything like that, they watch you for thirty minutes. And all the people that I know about who had the anaphylaxis, they treated them. They're there in a healthcare facility, and you know that was treated. So far, there are not other side effects that we know about. Something that's on an additional slide is when you get the vaccine, they give you an app that you can put on your phone and they keep asking you, have you had any symptoms? Have you had any side effects? I think that's one of the things when you're given this many people, this many doses, even if something is very, 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 very rare, you want to know about it. So they're still trying to get data. They're still trying to see what's going on. So there are different vaccines that people are working on. The Pfizer and the Moderna are the mRNA vaccines where they put the mRNA in the, the lipid. That's why it has to be so cold, and that's why that's one of the downsides of that, and that's one of the reasons that when they started doing this, that, well, where could we get the vaccines? Where could we send them for people to have a special freezer that's negative 70 degrees Celsius or negative 20 degrees Celsius? The AstraZeneca-Oxford um, vaccine is the adenovirus vector. That's where they put the, crown, the um, spike protein in a known adenovirus flu virus that's weakened, and then they inject it that is approved already in the UK they're in phase 3 testing in the United States and there are a lot of others i think on the other slide i think they said 8 but there are even more in testing right now so you're going to hear about things that are popping up this adenovirus vector is like the flu shot doesn't need to be refrigerated in russia they have sputnik 5 and that is already being used in i have a list here uh, serbia belarus algeria venezuela paraguay Um, Palestine, Bolivia, Argentina, those people are already getting this virus, although it has not been (laughs) approved here through our FDA and CDC and the rigorous um, science that we need it to go through. So you know, the, the federal government bought these vaccines, they are sending them to the states and then the states are trying to figure out how do we interpret them. So again, whenever you have a limited resource and you're trying to spread it out, there's gonna be some controversy, there's gonna be some bumps in the road, But this is what our state is trying to do. They made these phases. And I don't know why you couldn't say phase one, two, three, four. We have to have phase one A and then phase one B one, phase one B two. Why can't we just count? So phase one A is healthcare workers and first responders and nursing home residents. And that's where we are right now. And, you know, other states, people have been getting it, you know, in addition to that. Phase, Whatcom County right now is still in phase one A. Phase 1B, the first part, older than 70, or older than 50 and you're in a multi-generational household. Phase 2 is gonna be older than 50 and high-risk worker. Phase 3 will be greater than 16 years. So I didn't mention on the other slide, but the Moderna is I believe to 16 and the Pfizer to 18 or vice versa. So right now there are studies going on for kids. The main question is what's the dose? I think they feel like it's gonna work okay. They just don't know how much to give them and is testing anything, nobody wants to sign their kid up to get something that we don't know about. So they're working on the science of that. Then phase 1B4 is gonna be less than 50 year old and a high risk worker. Kind of in that is people in congregate living. So not people in the nursing homes, but correctional facilities, group homes, shelters, congregate living. And this changes, and I just took this from the Department of Health, Whatcom County, um, but that will change probably on a regular basis. Some of the things we're learning. Kids are more likely to be asymptomatic than adults, but infected children have more virus load compared to adults. And we know that kids are not as good at social distancing than adults. So um, I should say physical distancing, being socially close. Um, So that kids can have it and they can spread it. Transmission model from the CDC, again, this is a model. This is in fact, they estimate that 35% of people are spreading it before they have symptoms, but they get symptoms and the 24% are asymptomatic who never get symptoms. They never know they had it, they're just spreading it around. Um, so this is about 1% fatality is what we're seeing in the United States, 10 times more fatal than the flu. In the U.S., and this is obviously out of date already, 1 in 22 people, uh, adults are infected. In L.A., some places that has spots, 1 in 5 are infected, and I've heard people project up to 1 in 3 are going to become infected, so that you know, in your family or two of your other friends, one of you is going to get it. This number I've seen all over the board about what is herd immunity and, and where can we get there? Herd immunity is kind of like with measles, where enough people are vaccinated that this virus can't live in the community. It can't go from person to person who's not vaccinated. But as we've seen, you can get people pockets, people aren't vaccinated, haven't gotten it. And you we have seen outbreaks of measles in, intermittently. I've heard the number 77% around people who actually have it or get vaccinated before we get herd immunity. And the CDC is recommending vaccination even if you've previously had an effect an infect, the infection and the vaccination is estimated to be out by summer that everybody, that's our goal, is to have everybody who wants a vaccine can get a vaccine by the summer. Um, so just again, this is from Friday, global numbers of cases and deaths and the vaccine. So I don't have the global vaccines, but in the US there have been 12.2 million vaccines, Washington state, and then Whatcom County. Um, I'm not sure how to move that. There we go. Um, these have been done at St. Joe's because it was sent to St. Joe's because they have the ex- extra cold freezer. So first doses 27, 2,795, second doses 671, um, This was Friday, so I'm in there. So it's at least 72, but probably higher than that. And then the Moderna vaccine, I believe were sent out to the outpatient clinic and they've been trying to do community members. So I think that's where the paramedics and the first responders, I know the nurses in my office have signed up the ones who want it and are gonna get it as an outpatient. Um, Friday, kind of where are we in Bellingham? There were 18 COVID positive patients. And you know, it's disheartening because a lot of the summer, I would look at the little update and it'd be three or four. And we're now up to 18. Six of those are in the ICU. The rest of them are not as sick. They're in the step-down units. Um, The capacity use is about 82%, which that's actually pretty regular for us. Now, when you see that 20% of beds are empty, um, that when I was talking to one of the hospitalists, That's not the same people are there all the time. There are people coming and going every day off and on. We're just, we have 199 beds are filled of 241 beds. The ICU, 72% capacity, 24 beds of 33 beds. Now, this is the regular ICU. They have plans to open up other areas of the hospital. For example, I know the pre-op area has retrofitting and such so that if we needed more, surgeries would be cut, would be stopped and the pre-op area would become an ICU with ventilators and everything else we have 43 ventilators here at our hospital and three are in use and I know very early on there was a question about are we going to run out of ventilators on the east coast they were talking about rationing care we have plenty of ventilators and we're doing I think a better job as you can see in of the 18 patients, only six are in the ICU of keeping people off of ventilators um, and this is from this, the previous slide should you get vaccinated I can't tell you whether you should get vaccinated or not, but I think that you should weigh, just like any medical decision, you weigh what are the upsides and what are the downsides, what are the risks and what are the benefits. And from my standpoint, if I got COVID-19, there are high risks of long-term morbidity, even if I'm in a low-risk group and I don't succumb to the disease, there's high risk of me passing it to other family members who are higher risk and to patients and other people. The vaccine, there are some reactions. There are some unknown long-term sequelae. And again, you got to be careful about going down the rabbit hole of the internet. I I heard very early on about that that spike protein is very similar to a protein that the placenta uses to attach to the uterine wall. And so if you got this vaccine, would all the people who got this vaccine then be infertile because they can't, you know, actually, and, and that was actually debunked. That, you know, again, looking at the the official government websites, they say, no, we haven't seen that. We haven't seen people who had this kind of virus have those problems, but I think that we are going to learn things. And so you have to say there is some unknown of what could happen with this vaccine. Now, is it a risk of, you know, one in 10 are going to have some long-term morbidity, even if they don't pass away, but there's this low risk of you could have anaphylaxis or or a long-term unknown thing. So that's stuff you have to weigh. For my family, for the people who have not had a history of reaction to vaccines, I recommend getting it as soon as they can get it, whatever phase they have been in. And as I said, I got my second dose yesterday and I'm happy. My life, I have been going to work, but I go to work and I change my clothes into scrubs and I put on an N95 and I wear that all day long. And I, at the end of the day, change out of scrubs, I wash my hands, I'm gelling all during the day and I'm still afraid that I'm gonna bring something home to my family. I'm still afraid that somebody could do something through me. So this vaccine makes me a lot more um, sure and I'm gonna do the same thing. So let's go to the next one. No, where are we gonna get it? So in Whatcom County, again, this is from their websites. They're gonna to try to make it once we get to the more public phases in pharmacies and in primary care offices. I know that I've read on the East Coast where they're already doing it in some of the nursing homes, they're having some pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens coordinate with them, bring that out to the nursing homes and give it to them. The tricky part with is that the virus, the vaccine we have currently needs that cold storage. And so it's harder to get those mobily and brought out to places. And this is that smartphone monitoring system that when you get the vaccine, they give this to you and they say, if you have any symptoms, log in and tell us um, what your symptoms are so we can learn more about it. So what do you do if you get the vaccine? You've got to still do the everything we're doing now. Social connecting at a physical distance greater than six feet. I saw one study say that when you're singing, the particles can go up 24 feet. We all know about the choir down in Skagit Valley. We all know about how frustrating it is that we can't have our choir, but it's dangerous. When you're singing, the lung pressure, the, the airflow aerosolizes these things. In the dry air, inside in heaters, um, heated spaces, smaller particles travel farther and they float around longer. So we have to be more careful in the winter. That's a lot of times when the flu gets worse. Avoid groups, especially indoors. Mask all the time when you're outside your f- family bubble. Contact is multiple. What do I mean by that? If you see ten people and you say I was only with ten people, but each of them has seen ten people, you just saw a hundred people. You were just exposed to a hundred people. And so I think it's hard because it's been a long time. We've been quarantine, we've been locked down for a long time. And you want to say, the people around me, they're not getting sick. I don't see anybody around. I want to go out and do things. And it's hard. It's hard to stay vigilant, but you have to remember. And the people you're around, I think you just have to know what are their bubbles like. Um, I had a patient that was just in the hospital recently and she got it over Christmas where she met with her daughter who was from Seattle and she didn't. her daughter didn't know she had it, but it brought it up to her and she is a high risk person. And luckily she's out of the hospital, but those are the kind of decisions we have to think about. Those are the things we can control even after you get the vaccine. Oh, a little tirade on masks. Masks, if they're working properly, you should notice that you can't breathe as well. So if you say, this is a really comfortable mask, I can breathe perfectly, it's probably not doing its job. If you take an air filter and cut a big hole in the middle of it and the air is going through that hole, the other part is not filtering anything. Likewise, those exhale valves, which make it much more comfortable, are protecting you, but you're not protecting anybody else. All the air you exhale, which you could be a carrier, are going to other people. Interesting studies showing bandanas and one-layer face coverings actually make the virus spread out more into smaller particles, and they stick around longer. So the people you see wearing a gaiter or bandana, it'd be better if they weren't wearing anything at all. Now, I don't get um, militant and tell people you have to wear something different or other things, but I can control who I'm around. And if I see people like that, I'm getting away from them. This was a talk done by Dr. Lisa Allgood, who is an immunologist. She actually was a vaccine scientist and she's a presbyter in the Midwest. Um, This is the link here and you can go back and grab that from the video. Um, It's about an hour talk about the vaccine and about where we are. And that was from the 7th of January, so you know, the, the stuff she said there, some of it is gonna be out of date already, and some of it we're, we're still learning. Um, but she has a lot of good information there. And those are just my references, you don't; know. Those are up there to be complete, and you can look at them later, but you don't need to look at them. So. Andrew,
1: Andrew, thank you so much. Um, That was such a rich presentation of both of the science, a good refresher in our biology, and I appreciated the diagrams and everything. And I see three questions in the chat, Um, continue to enter those in. And before we go to the questions, I wanted to um, invite Glenda and Mary Lynn to just, is there anything you would like to add as our faith community nurses? You're still hold on
0: miss. There you go. That's okay. Okay. I want to say thank you, Andrew. That was just excellent. And you hit so much. Um, I've been hearing people say lately, well, once I get the vaccine, I can quit wearing the mask and I say no, 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 no. (laughs) Um, Because they still can carry it. So I, I just love the caution that you give us about continuing to do the mask and the washing hands and the physical distancing, but social closeness and um, all of that and how that's out of our love and respect for one another. And um, so that was just excellent. I think um, that talk with Lisa Allwood was excellent that you had the slide up about that. And I know some of it is out of date, but Glenda and I have both watched that and she also has a fact sheet which is really good. So we'll put that on the website and just know that things change by the day, by the hour, but it had a lot of good basic information. And Glenda and I have been going to the Whatcom County Health Department zoom meetings every, um, they're going to make them every two weeks now. And so your slide, um, Andrew, on that and what the distribution is, and the different tiers. Um, that will be changing often. So that's a great place to go. But I think um, Glenda I just want to be a resource to people. And certainly we don't have all the answers, but if you have questions, you could let us know and we could do some research and get back to you. And also we just want to be here for you. Um, this is a hard time for people. Um, the isolation is getting really hard and um, People, especially living alone and older, are, are struggling more. So we just want to be available to talk to people on the phone and encourage them. And But we need them to reach out to us. We're trying to reach out to people. But um, we just want to do that and encourage people that if they're having anxiety and, you know, maybe feeling really low for longer than a few days, that medical help and um, getting some counseling could be really good during these, these challenging days. And we can help make that happen for you. It's so easy to do either with phone calls or on Zoom. So we just won't want people to go um, to continue to be in need and not reach out for help. So I think our church is doing a good job, but I'm sure there's people maybe that haven't shared that they're struggling. So yes. anyway, um, but you, give us a call and thanks again, Andrew. And I would like to say that we're open for other topics too. I mean, if you have any questions about your health care or want information about facilities or whatever, we can can help you with those. We're very good at looking things up if we don't know Mm -hmm. the answers. (laughs) And also at our meeting yesterday with a health department, it was recommended that For most information, if you go to the CDC website Mm -hmm. or the Washington State Health Department website, that those are very good places to get information. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much, Glenda and Mary Lynn. And, And I just want to encourage you, too, if you have a family member who you think who would benefit from talking to them, you can ask if you can... them in contact with them or ask if Glenda or Mary Lynn can reach out directly to them. So I am going to now we're going to move on to our questions and answers and um, let's start with uh, this question. We are over 70 and have some already existing health issues. Um, How how do they understand when they can get the shot? Uh, That's
2: a good question. It's a hard question because I don't know exactly how it's going to get out to the primary care providers, but that's what I'd recommend is talking to your provider, number one, to make sure that it's a good idea for you to get it. And really, in my mind, the main reason not to get it is they're not recommending anybody who's had an anaphylactic reaction to any vaccine in the past. And it should come through those primary care providers. I would also keep an eye on the Department of Health, the Whatcom County Department of Health and see if they make other arrangements. I know, like I was saying, the Moderna that's now going through the outpatient clinic is still just in phase 1A, is still for the paramedics and in Washington County, for the paramedics and the healthcare providers in the private clinics. So I think as soon as we go to the public, that person is gonna be you know first, I don't remember the, the stages on the slide, but I think it's gonna be 1BA or 1B1. And so that's why we just have to be in touch with your primary care provider and if you don't have one, you should get one, but you should, um, you know, through the Department of Health. And right now, for good or bad, where we are is Peace Health has the refrigerators. So I'm not sure how you feel about Peace Health, but all the Pfizer vaccines are at Peace Health, and that's where I had to go to get mine. The Moderna ones, they have them at the outpatient clinic, but that's still with Peace Health. And so you may need to until it gets to the private other ones. If it is at Peace Health, you may need to get there to get the vaccine. But I would just watch the stages. And unfortunately, we are still in the 1A. Um, And I have heard other counties, other states who are further along than we are.
1: So, this question is is related to that. You know, how do you register to get it? And it sounds like what I hear you saying right now, you just have to keep going to the Whatcom CDC website to get information. Yeah. And
2: I would touch base with the, the physicians now. We don't have all the information, but we should know when it is. And your physician should have a list of this is somebody who needs it, who wants it, and as soon as it's available, we'll get you in to get it to you. But again, I don't know exactly how that's going to roll out.
1: Yeah, it, it's hard when we hear um, of different processes, even in different counties of our state. So we just have to remember, I suppose, that we are governed by our CDC, Department of Health, yeah. yeah, Department of Health. Um, so the other, is there a concern? I think we've heard some concerns in the media about a second shot, about the follow-up shot. Will that be available or not? What 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 is your research? Or...
2: So what I know from what I've asked them when we got our shot is when I got my first shot, they made me a an appointment to get the second shot. And here locally at Peace Health, they had second shots for everybody when they had their first shot. So they knew that it was there. I heard in the, the craziness, somebody said they were withholding, the government was withholding vaccines or they weren't withholding vaccines or they're trying to be sure. And I can't comment on all that politics and communication and, and everything else. What I do know is for me, when I got my first shot, that visit, they scheduled me for my second shot and they had vaccine available for that. I think now that the vaccine is coming out, you know, with a more steady, reliable stream, that's going to be less of an issue. But you shouldn't get two different shots. You shouldn't get a Moderna first shot and a Pfizer second shot. Yeah. But the places where you're getting it should, um, you know, have the availability. I don't know what that means globally or, you know, the United States or the statewide. I know for here, they have the shot for when you get your first one. Uh,
1: that that's helpful clarification, I think, too. Mm-hmm. Um... To follow up when you're getting your first shot and go ahead and make that second appointment to understand you don't want to be seeking out a different manufacturer's mm-hmm. second dose. You want to stick with the same manufacturer. And then I'm just going to add my own question, Andrew. And um, as an employee of Peace Health, I too got my first vaccine. And as I was in observation and they offered the website that you referred to, the app, to record my symptoms, I know. I had a little bit of, well, what does this mean that this app is going to know, you know my phone number and get information from me? Um, but I did kind of go through that struggle and decided I wanted to be part of giving information. And is that, do you recommend being part of giving that feedback to the health department?
2: Um, well, I think that any information they have is helpful for them, I agree. As Americans, we are skeptical of Big Brother and we don't wanna give anything that we don't have to. Um, and I think that yes, if you do have any symptoms, it's a good idea to make sure they know about it because we want them to know. Now, probably I shouldn't admit this, but I didn't sign up for that and I didn't have any symptoms. So that's actually not as helpful because they don't have me in the denominator of people who had no symptoms. But I think if I had any symptoms, I'd definitely let them know. It's just good because we are still learning. Um, And there's a lot we are still learning. There was a question I heard, again, in media that um, could you still spread it if you had the vaccine? And I think there was some conjecture and other things. Going back to the biology, my understanding of how it's spread, if you have the vaccine and you're immune, you shouldn't. But we don't know that that's true. So I think we're going to learn that. You could see people, are they vaccinated and do they not? But we don't have that information yet. Um, and so we're still kind of on the steep part of the learning curve trying to figure out what, what is there. And I agree with Glenda is, you know, get your sources of information from your physician or the Department of Health or the CDC, and um, but we're still learning. So there are some things still out there.
1: This has been a wonderful spiritual practice of COVID <laughs> that we have to sit in the unknown so often and um, take one day at a time and try to get our information from reliable sources but thank you I liked what you said in your presentation that scientific information um, requires interpretation and scrutiny and um, I just appreciate that you're offering us a, a model of how you do that as a person of science and as a as a medical practitioner. So thank you for bringing us along with you in that. But I have-
2: Because the the, the political part of it is science is a word that's thrown around. Hmm. Most people forget that the scientific method is you make a hypothesis and then you try to prove it wrong. And if you can't prove it wrong, then you say, okay, that must be true until new information comes along. And if that proves it wrong, it may not be true. So there are some things in science that we know for sure but every time we dig deeper into something, we understand it better. We know a little bit better. And right now, science is a political word. Personally, for me and for my patients and for the people in my life, you use the information you have right now and you make the best decision you can. And you can't get you know tied up too much in what we don't know or what could else be possibly out there.
1: Thank you, wise words. Um, okay, here we have a little bit more a little nuanced question. Um, so does the vaccine prevent the person from actually becoming infected or is a fully vaccinated person simply protected against having more severe symptoms if they become infected?
2: If it works as designed, the vaccine should make it so you do not get the disease, that your immune system has seen that disease and you do not get it um and you know in we know that the world is not black and white yes and no you're vaccinated you'll never get it but the way it's supposed to work is you should not get it um and if somebody did have some immunocompromise or their their immune system wasn't as strong i could see the possibility that they have some immunity but they get exposed to it and they still have more we still don't know exactly what makes somebody the 20-year-old who gets it and was sick in bed for two days and is fine, and the 20-year-old who's in the hospital intubated, the things we think are the dose, how much virus load was, were you exposed to, and for how long, how much did you actually get, and, you know, was your your body able to respond to that? I think that's one of the things, that's why they say if you can be physically distant and um, not for very long. I've heard, and then, in antidotally, That when the health department has been um, looking at some of these exposures, they will come in and they'll say, were you around anybody for 15 minutes? And that 15 minutes is cumulative over a day. So if you're around for five and you go Mm -hmm. and you're around for five. So, and that's what they would consider risky. And then did you have a mask on one that time? And did you, were you six feet in that time? And so those are things they're looking at, but still that's not, I can't say that if I was with you for 14 minutes, that there's no way I'm going to get it. if I was with you for 16 minutes, I'd definitely get it. But those are the the guidelines at this point.
1: That's helpful. Um, And then the last question I see here is how long after we are vaccinated will we need to wear a mask? And, And you have answered that a little bit. I wonder if beneath that, that is maybe how long after the second vaccine, maybe are we still at risk of getting the virus? I wonder, I'm wonder. i wondering about the nuances behind that question.
2: So they say the maximum immunity is two weeks after you get your second dose. So after you get your second dose, that's gonna be the highest. Now there's some things we don't know. How long does that vaccine last? How long are you, do you have those antibodies and the T-cells forever? Like some of the things we vaccinate for, like the measles, you get your, your shot, your, your booster, and then you never need it again. Or the flu, where we have to get it every year. And if it keeps changing, I've heard some people hypothesize, this may be something that we need to get mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. But how long do you have to wear a mask after you're vaccinated? A wise man once told me it's a mystery. We don't know. I think that if we got to the quote unquote herd immunity where in Watcom County, we don't have no, any new cases or we have very few new cases, we may at that time be able to, um, you know, relax some of our restrictions. It's just hard because especially, again, in the media, when you're comparing our country to other countries, our country is unique. We travel all over the place. We're going you know, in our states and across our states, and we avoid doing what we don't want to do. There are people who you tell them a rule, like myself, and say, great, I'm following that rule. I know what I need to do. And there are people who you tell them a rule, and they say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that just not to do that. And so that's some of the confusing things to me, where you see some of the states that have been locked down, quote unquote, more severely, and their numbers are going up, and other states that haven't been locked down, and their numbers are the same or going down. Part of it, that's not the question. The question is, are people doing what they're supposed to do? Not what did the government tell you you're supposed to do? Because I still hear stories that shock me here from patients of, oh, I went... this party with 20 people there we were inside for two hours i just think what are you doing you know that's not what you're supposed to be doing regardless of what other people tell you to do you control your actions you control your bubble and i just encourage you to be an active participant in making decisions about your bubble and their hard decisions because again i have two daughters they want to play with their friends and some of their friends we know what their bubbles look like and they can play with them limited with masks we know some of their friends and what their bubbles look like, or we don't know. And we say, you know, you can't spend time with them. You're with the Zoom or, or other thing, And yeah. so it's just hard. It is a hard time. And we just have to stay vigilant and persist and just, you know, be safe in in the people who are around you that you can control. I can't have tell what's happening in Olympia or what's happening in other states. I can help right here with me and my family and my patients and encourage people to Take so I don't know how long the masks. I'm hoping that if we can get everybody get vaccinated by the summer and the numbers are going down and there's not a new variant that, you know, by the end of this year or maybe next year we can. But if you look at some of those um, Asian countries, one of the reasons they responded so quickly is because they had SARS and MERS and people were dying a lot. And if you see pictures, I, I haven't been to those countries but you see pictures of people living in big cities, they wear masks all the time when there's not an outbreak because they were exposed to something very bad and they don't ever wanna go back. So some of us may always wear masks, hopefully not my N95, but some of us <laughs> always may wear a mask going to Seattle or going into a big group or to you know uh, an event, I, I, it, we don't know.
1: That's it's a good place to um, end our recording, just that reminder that we, We make decisions based on the information we have. And as Christians, we want to make decisions that reflect our love for God and our calling to love others. And um, so, thank you so much, Andrew. You're welcome. Okay.